for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. The show is produced by Ben Murray. On today's episode, we spoke with my friend Guillermo Bill Ravello. Bill served in the U.S. Army for 23 years as a forward observer, both in the Ranger Regiment and 7th Special Forces Group. When he retired in 2015, Bill moved to New York City for an internship on Wall Street and has stayed with the same bank who hired him. He also spends a lot of his time being a mentor and coaching new bankers, both vets and others. Bill joins us remote from his home in the Dominican Republic. COVID gave me a good reset to realize what I want to do as a professional. And I met some really interesting people down there that are entrepreneurs or expats, and they just have four, five, six. One guy I know has seven different revenue streams. It just blew my mind. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Problem solved, problem staying solved. Rangers lead the way. <laughs> this is not the longest it's taken us to start recording, by the way. It's because of me. Uh, I'm special. Yeah. It's because of COVID. <laughs> it, it definitely is. Yeah. Well, it's, it it's because is. of COVID, but, and it's because we can't afford to like fly people in and out of the studio. <laughs> Uh, you know, from across country to to sit down because we don't make ten million dollars in ads like Rogan. Well, uh, listen, brother. If you told me, "Hey, come up to New York to do this," I, I, pro- I definitely take off. Jesus, I yeah. uh, I would feel guilty. I have to get some other activities going. Or you can come down here. I would say you, you would definitely enjoy it. So, when did you? Uh, how long have you been down there in uh, DR? I got here last July, uh, July 4th, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, after, you know, New York was just, it was just an interesting, insane COVID situation. And I was just like, okay, let's, uh, let's figure out what we're doing next, what's our next step. And then my wife, my mom, mother-in-law, grandmother came here to where I'm at. And I was just like, God, they're having a great time. What am I doing? And then the country opened up July 1st, so bought my plane ticket right away, and I was just like, I'm, uh, you know, I'm out. I'm just out. I just had enough. And talking to my, my manager, he was like, that's not a bad idea because we don't know when we're going back to the office. Yeah. So I just took off, you know. I still have a storage uh, unit in New York. So I miss it dearly every day, just the sounds and everything. Like, plus the ability to go to Chirping Chicken <laughs> on the road. <laughs> so, that, that was my go-to place, you know. But, but yeah, no, this is nice. It's a good change of scenery. I think everybody would enjoy it. I mean, for me and, my, and the family, plus the kids, plus the work environment, it's really helped. I think one interesting aspect is that it's opened my, my mind to the possibilities of entrepreneurship, which you and I used to talk about yeah. a lot. Yeah. And, and suddenly, I came here, you know, I, my father passed away in 2019, so after that, my mother started picking up, you know, all the pieces, and, and she was like, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? And then she came up, we helped, my brother and I helped her develop a business idea, so we helped her do that. Plus, because of my dad, we inherited a sugar cane farm, so we started coming up with some ideas, and now we're doing... Now we also do uh, real estate where we do villa rentals and some sales. But it, it's just nice. It just give me an idea. It's just something to do. And then I started, uh, I'm building an app as well, which was interesting. Yeah. And it just gave, COVID gave me a good reset to realize 
what I want to do as a professional. And I met some really interesting people down here that are entrepreneurs or expats, and they just have four, five, six. One guy I know has seven different revenue streams. It just blew my mind. I'm like, well, why can't I do that? The one thing I had a passion for always was real estate. So, and that my mother and granddad and me. So I've been doing that. It's been it's a, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I'll say that. Yeah. Is that is that like the uh, the rich dad poor dad book kind of building some passive income? Where the real estate come from? Uh, my mother, she used to run very amazing villas out here. Uh, the villa. It's exactly what you the name says. It's a it's a pretty big house. You're looking at about she, the, she used to run six six villas. Uh, average was about six bedrooms, uh, over twenty seven thousand square feet, forty thousand foot lot, forty thousand square foot lots. Some of the one was in the ocean. It was a, it was actually it's still the largest property in the Dominican Republic. And so I used to see her, and she would teach us like this is what you look for. This is how you do things. And it was more or less like a hotel, so I wasn't very interested in that. What I liked about it was the, the property as a product. And how do you manage a product? How do you sell a product? And so for me, that was always really cool because, as you know, at the bank, I do product sales, so it was very correlated. I was like, okay, I think I could, we could do something here. But again, you know, my mother being who she is, she was like, mm, you guys are stupid, you don't know what you're doing. So she would, she would literally walk us through and me and say, okay, this is what you guys got to do, look at. And then, so we started just to, you know, we met, I met somebody that owns a villa. I said, would you mind if I would post it in Airbnb, you can make some passive income. And he was like, oh yeah, sure, no problem. You know, he's a friend of my mom's. So he was like, I don't have a problem. And I was like, okay. And he was like, well, what are you gonna charge me? And I said, so I was like, look, it's a standard is probably 10%. So that's what we'll keep it at. He's like, okay, deal. And little by little, we got very lucky. Uh, we had some amazing hits. Um, and then I met some other folks within the real estate. And they've been really cool, supportive. It's not, I, I don't try to make it competitive. I just try to learn. Because I feel like anything new, you, you're trying to learn the market, the audience you're trying to reach. And then what is the product you're trying to sell? Is it an experience or is it a product of stay? So my product, the way I promote it, is an experience because I want you to relax. You had a very tough year, what, you know, you want to get away. So our, our goal is to bring people and clients down here to stay and just feel completely at ease and relaxed. That, and that's what we're trying to achieve. That experience of the millennial, sure, that's one aspect of it. But I think the bigger aspect is get out, you know, get out and explore. And, and yes, we're lucky where I live, but just another aspect. But again, I have to thank my mom. She's really the, the driving force behind all that and just, you know, beating us up across the head about things, paying attention to details and every little thing. How much, you know, um, how much is the rest of your family involved in hospitality or, or uh, is the experience pretty widespread or no? Uh, no, <laughs> no. Uh, my family is typically they're either a lawyer, a doctor, or they're a computer science person. Hmm. That's that's my family. My brother, my brother works for Gucci. I know. Oh, nice. But so, what yeah. Happened? So he's like, and he works in. 
Well, he works. Uh, but he loves it. So he works. He is the head of the North America customer service, and so he brings that customer aspect to yeah. it. And so it's a different vibe. And by the way, he does. The, he is the e-commerce head of customer service. So he's getting. He's seeing all these things, and he's telling me like, "This is what we're doing." I'm like, "That's super cool." I think I can apply this somehow here. And so the way we interact, we try to make it really easy for a decision. Mm. You know, when somebody says, okay, do I want to do this? And so that's a go. I mean, it's, look, it's, it's hard work. Uh, it's a side business. Um, but like any other side business, you got to dedicate some hours to it. The sales aspect, I would say, was, was a kind of natural way to go after a while. Do you think that your personality is predisposed to sales and business development? Because just from knowing you, I mean, you're you're a pretty gregarious guy and uh, you can hold court and I've always known you to be like that. Do you lean into that part of your personality? (laughs) Bro, come on, no. I didn't know. Um, (laughs) uh, I didn't know. I mean, look, I was a a ranger for observer. My job was to talk on the microphone. That's it. That was my job. Yeah. Uh, I was in Blabber, and literally when we would do, you know, whether it was uh, FO Olympics or or, um, or or anything like that, and you could grab the mic and you were just like talking, you you do stress shoot. So I was always a talker. I didn't know I would go into sales until I met uh, a gentleman who was the. There's two people who really influenced that decision. One was my mom's old. old boss and I would have met him and he said you, you're going to be a salesperson and he's like I'm a salesperson hmm. and I was like okay I thought managing directors just didn't talk and he was like no you're sales you're selling your brand your processes your service so you will have to learn how to be in sales but your personality leans you towards that and I was like that's the first time it clicked really and then I met a very senior person at the bank and he was like you should go to sales just from knowing you just five minutes go to sales and I was like alright I think that's what I'm going to do <laughs> and I landed a sales role and it was learning what was really military basics like building trust with the clients and those around you and then being transparent totally people learn People say yes or no to you because you represent the brand, not because because of the, the, the trust in you, your transparency with them, and that makes you genuine. In a world where, look, let's be quite honest, in a world where, especially where people look, might look at the short-term goal, yeah, whether I'm looking, I'm looking for, I'm looking to marry you as a client. I'm not looking to just date you. So that was my, my thought process. And I, it took me a bit to learn, but uh, another kind of story of what led into that, I got, this is a really good one. My first internship was at a desk that was full of nothing but quants. It was Caltech, Dartmouth math, you know, Russian math Olympics number one for three years in a row. So it was all these guys that were super, super, super smart. And I'm just like trying to get their attention, trying to learn, and they're teaching me things. That, let's be honest, I was way out of my league. I was just trying to figure out what the hell a bond math was. So I was way out of my league. And so he goes, at the end of the rotation, 
we're in there and we're talking to the HR and he goes, they ask him, well, what do you think? And he's like, well, in our desk build would not be a good fit. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, this mathematics is, is, not, is not on par, what we're looking for. However, if you don't hire him, this entire desk is quitting because we like who he is. He is, the be- he is a good fit for the banking. He is exactly the kind of person the bank needs. I will never, ever forget that, that what he said. And it, was, it made me realize that you do have something to offer when, people think, when you don't see yourself as being having that ability. But that, that's when I realized, uh, little by little, that I could be in sales. So compete so where you have the advantage. Yeah, it's, it's, like a, it's almost like a military operation per se, because you're trying to figure out, okay, what's my advantage? My advantage is I have a various personality. I know myself well enough to know I can get along with people. Even if they're introverted, my favorite people actually to get out of the shell is introverted people. So I like getting to know them. But I don't just every day like, hey, what are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? It's more like I get to know you slowly. You know, um, and so, yeah, it's just build down the, the wall. And then once they get to know you, they're like, all right, you're kind of cool. Let's talk. And that, that's the way it started. You know, like when we first met, you're like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? He must do some type of crazy drug or something He like must that. be a ranger. You know? <laughs> I, I definitely am. You know, life. <laughs> you know. Uh, with your family and, you know, forgive me if I, if I you know, forget, but. Did you grow up? Did you grow up there and then move to the states, or did you have family in both places? My story is a little complicated but funny. Um, I was born in Puerto Rico. My mom went to uh, visit my my who would become my godfather and my godmother, and she was not expecting me. And next thing you know, I pop out, and she stayed there for six months in Puerto Rico. My father at the time was in Colombia doing research in the Colombian jungle because he's writing, he's there to do research on plants that um, will enhance the animal nutrition. So my father was, talk to my father about nutrition and especially animal nutrition, mm-hmm. you'll be there all day. Your family is just uh, so, 20 pound brains all over the place, isn't it? Yeah, they're, they're lucky. I didn't get that. I, I got something else. It was just the, the Bronx. So, so, yeah. So, my father, they had a radio call him and tell him over the radio that I was born. That's how funny it was. So, yeah. So, yeah, we come back to Dominican Republic and then we live close to my grandmother and everybody and they would just, you know, back and forth back in my day. And then some time i didn't see my dad until i think it was like a year or something but anyways my mom took a trip to see my my dad after i was born and then she comes and then that's where my brother was <laughs> he came back <laughs> so the joke is my, my mom went went there to meet up with my dad so they can appropriate my, my brother so then my, my father finally comes and he's like all right well, let's do this so remember as a kid my dad's a veterinarian we used to have a snake which Got to, I remember this vividly. The snake got him kicked out of the house. The goat got him kicked out of the house once. It was pretty funny. But I grew up in this environment that was so, it was kind of interesting being a kid. Here, because back in the day, you can walk anywhere. You can learn a lot. 
And so about age six, my father got a, uh, he got a scholarship to go study at Ohio State, which is obviously, it is the Ohio State. So well, but for veterinary, it's huge too, right? Right. So my father was all excited. He's like, I'm, I'm doing my PhD. I'm going to do this. I didn't know as a kid. All I knew is that a Spanish kid was going to Ohio. And I didn't know anything. I don't know how to speak any English. So imagine uprooting everything, going to Ohio. I don't speak a lick of English, going to school, and I don't know anything. And they're just telling me, like, they couldn't even say my name. They couldn't say Guillermo. So my dad was like, ah, just, just tell them to call you Bill. That's what they call me. I'm like, I'm like all right. So that's how Bill Ravello was created. It was because of that. Because So... I, me and my brother, we used to watch football. Uh, and Tom, obviously, Dallas Cowboys, the Ohio State. And we used to watch Happy Days a lot. So the way we learned English was watching the fonts. So, <laughs> right. And <laughs> I, I can't make this up. My mother used to teach Spanish to the Ohio State football team as a tutor. So, and my mother couldn't speak very good English, so it was quite crazy. So these guys are cool, and these big, big guys, and I was like, wow. You know, they picked me up afterwards, and my mom would cut for them. My father would be like, what the hell's going on here? This looks like a, like a hippie house. You know, and he would bring his friends over, and we lived in the, what was the international dorms of Ohio State. It, but it was so cool because you can go over to next door, talk to somebody from Spain, India, China, a uh, real good friend of my parents was from Morocco. So you had this incredible atmosphere of different cultures. Meanwhile, I'm trying to learn English. I'm trying, my brother and I, we're just messing with each other. Here comes Halloween, and I'll never forget, I'm, my first costume was the fonts. And my brother was a football player. And this is, there's literally a picture of me and my brother going like this. It was just like this, I'm just cracking up. And it, but it made me appreciate, I didn't realize at the time the influence that would have on me until later on in life. As, especially after you know, my dad finished his PhD, um, which I read actually three years ago, which is really interesting. And then we had to move from Ohio to New Jersey, Plainfield, New Jersey, to go live with my aunt because you know, obviously my parents, their choice was like, okay, go back to Dominican Republic and, or, you know, live the American dream. So it, it was it was really challenging, obviously, because number one, I'll be honest, my parents didn't have a green card. All he had was a student visa, but he didn't have a green card, so he was trying to figure out how to get a green card. My mom was the same way, so that everybody was working, and for a while we were we were shocked up with uh, my aunt and uncle and my cousins, and we were living in the upstairs attic, and so it was me and my brother. My dad and my mom, and that's how we were living. But as a kid, you don't realize it. But again, you just going through that life experience. It was interesting. Then we moved to Providence, Rhode Island. Boy, what an experience Providence was! Like I got, you know, <laughs> it was very formative because I was just turning eleven. I was introduced to to this new environment. Seeing that's where I first learned about rap. Break dan- well, breakdancing was back in New Jersey. I started breakdancing then. So I grew up in, in the U.S. And Hold on, you're like actively breakdancing? 
You're like, yeah, well, as a it's kid. not just a thing that's yeah. out there. You're like going yeah. and like uh, yeah. bringing your own cardboard to the playground and shit. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when we would come up to New York from from Plainfield, <laughs> we would go to my cousin's house, and she lived in Washington Heights back in the '80s. So, so you could only go about a block back in the day in Washington Heights because, yeah, it was pretty dangerous back then. So they wouldn't let me or my brother go more than a block. And so we would take the cardboard out, we put the radio, me and my cousins and everybody, we would break dance. I wasn't very good, but I didn't care because I was just trying to do it. I was just trying to be cool. Because yeah. uh, Beat Street just came out and all this other stuff, and I was just like loving it. So it was really cool. My dad would take me to the movies, you know, like Platoon. I still remember seeing Platoon as a kid with my dad. That was our thing. Hamburger Hill. Uh, my dad and I, we watched Delta Force, and he was like, oh, Chuck Norris is a bomb. You know, so, so there's these, uh, you know, I, and I remember very vividly in Ohio, because we used to play, you know, Army, whatever. I was really into the Marines because of the attack on the Marine barracks back in Beirut. I was really, I saw it and I was like, oh, I, you know, I want to be a Marine. And my dad was like, no, you don't. You know, so he took me down to the recruiting station and actually made me sit down with the recruiter and talk to the recruiter's talking to me. He's like, you're too young. You can't even do one one push up. And I was like, oh shoot, <laughs> suck. Wait, so, he made the, he made but, the marine recruiter <laughs> kick you out of the office. Yeah, pretty much. It was to teach me a lesson because my dad's like, you're gonna go to college, you're gonna do this, and I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, I don't have your brain. I just don't have your brain. So yeah, Providence loved it, but then I didn't exactly live in the for a period in the nicest part of the of Providence. Uh, there was a lot of gang influence. The Latin Kings were really big back then. And so I would go to school and my parents would watch me very closely. And they were like, okay, you're starting probably to, to hang around some kids you shouldn't be. And I was going to the ninth grade. So my parents decided, hey, it's, you forgot your Spanish. Things are happening. You go to, you're going to go to Venezuela. I'm like, what? Because I forgot Spanish? And they're like, yeah, you're going to go to Venezuela to live with your aunt. And I was like, oh, great. So I got sent to Venezuela to, quote, unquote, learn Spanish. No, really, because I was, I was probably, if I wouldn't have done that, I probably, honestly, I probably would have been jumped into a game. Hmm. And so they, they did what they thought that was right. You're all over the map before so, you're even, like, 18. Yeah, well, it gets better. After a year in Venezuela, which was a very formative time as well. Oh, uh, God, I, I have to appreciate my aunt. This is before Venezuela when it was an incredible country. It was beautiful. We used to travel. My aunt and uncle were professors at the Central Venezuelan University. Both of, my aunt was a specialist in petroleum. My uncle was a geologist. And they would work consult for PDVSA on the weekend, so they had to travel to all these different parts. And I saw a different Venezuela than a lot of people have seen now, and I just fell in love with the country back then. Um, it was so, what an incredible experience, really. It, again, I didn't know how formative it was until years later. After that year, I was sent to Dominican Republic to live here, and where I currently live in a town called La Romana, which is, which is a time in the 80s, I came here in 86. Uh, I got put into a school taught by English teachers, uh, recruited from all over the UK, 
And that really, you know, just pushed me along to do some things in life. And I met some really incredible friends. They're still friends to this day. Uh, and then after I graduated, I was like, okay, I'm going to go to college in Puerto Rico. I went to college in Puerto Rico. And that's where I really rebelled, really started rebelling against my parents. Uh, Latin parents, everybody's like, oh, they're, 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 they're kind of, you know, Latin parents are usually cool. No, they're not. They're very strict with their kids, especially the firstborn. Uh, so I was given the choice. Either you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor. And I was like, I want to be an engineer, electrical engineer, because I want to build robots. Yeah, not a good dream. So my parents were like, nope. <laughs> Set me. <laughs> Set me. They're like, all right, you're on your own. I was like, oh, shit, what am I going to do? I went into the recruiting office thinking I would have joined ROTC. <laughs> this is me at the U.S. Army recruiting office. I was oh, like, I shit, can't so you didn't know that that's team. not for joining ROTC. I didn't know. I didn't know. I was literally in there, and then the guy's, you know, the guy in the crew is like, I, he literally, I'm there for He goes, don't worry, man. I'm going to sign you up in three hours. You're done. Okay? You're good. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's do this. <laughs> and so I go in and I start doing a test. And I was like, all right. And he's like, all right, good. Pick your job. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And he's like, okay, good. See you later. And this is when you kind of... And then I said, look, I'm like, six fucking years? I signed up for six years? Holy shit. Holy shit. So my first contract? Yeah. My first contract in the military? Six years. That's like the longest, and right? And I was like, what? Right. At the time, it was the longest. And I went to MEPS. Then I was like, oh, shit. How am I going to tell my parents? I remember going to my aunt's house. And I told her what I did. And she was like, you did what? And she's like, go back to the recruiting office. And I was like, I signed on the dotted line. This so I, I got a couple questions. So one, sure. one about like your citizenship at that time. Uh, and then two about this is like probably pretty close to Desert Storm, right? It was right after. It was right, it was right after. So wait, since you were this born in Puerto Rico, that I was am. the key, right? Oh, uh, you're a citizen. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't realize at the time being born there, didn't even my parents what a good thing that was. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty funny. Yeah. I get to basic training and. And I'm just like, oh boy, what the hell is this mixture of ragtags people? And it's just yeah. incredible. It's just meeting different people from different walks of life. And my parents always taught me, like, don't judge everybody for where they come from. Judge them for who they are. Doesn't matter what the color of their skin is. Doesn't matter where their background is. Doesn't matter how much money it is. You judge them for who they are. And that's where I met some really cool people that you know you hang out with and become tight with it. But it was quite interesting the first time I, I went for the two-mile PT test. Oh, my God, dude. I was dying. I think my first time, I, I was trying to train up prior. It was nothing like it. I think, I, I remember vividly, 28 minutes at that time. 28 minutes for a two-mile? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude. That was sucked. You mall walking? sucked, man. I was, I think so. I was think I was dying. I, I was like, oh, my God, this is not cool. So... It was, yeah, it wasn't exactly the PT stud I thought I could be, you know, all, all 140-pound guy. So it's pretty bad. I'll never forget it. I'm like, I must be really stupid because, I'm, you know, I'm learning through osmosis of push-ups and sit-ups and low crawls and 
squats and, and, and bear, you know, cockroach drills and everything. I was just like, oh my God. I, I, and that's when I realized that I'm not really that smart. <laughs> so I have to figure it out, you know, how to go through life. But again, I love, but then I, what I didn't realize was I love it. I loved all the hard stuff. Were you like 18, 19? I was 18. Yeah. Because that is such a, you're yeah. still a kid. You're not an adult yet. Yeah. And, and I think every one of us remembers it kind of similarly where, uh, you know, two days ago, your, yeah. your entire life was completely different. At the time, somebody was like, yeah, man, two, three days ago, I was high on weed, you know? Mm. Next thing you know, I'm here. That's how you like that. Like this, well, you kind of still smell like it, bro. So you want to be an electrical engineer in college, and then you go and they sign mm-hmm. you up to be a forward observer. First, what is it? Because we have people who don't know. And then, how'd sure. you go from how'd you go from one ambition to the next? It was a be all you can be Army Ranger video that they showed me. Uh-huh. That's what you know. I was like, that dude's jumping out of airplanes, blowing stuff up. Uh, I think I'll do that. <laughs> that that was literally it. And then I was like, what does he do? And I think it, I was like, do you have a, you know, I have a 40 option, which is a, a 40 option is a engine contract. And the guy goes, yeah, it's called forward observer. And we can be infantry, man. I was like, well, infantry sounds really dumb. You know, so I will take forward observer. At least that sounds like a, like a little bit smarter. Hmm. <laughs> so at least. And I didn't know what an influence that would be. Um, and so uh, a forward observer is basically a soldier or a Marine, because they have them in the Marines as well, that observes artillery, naval gunfire, mortars, and directs also attack helicopters, and now, obviously, close air support aircraft, and to include unmanned area vehicles into the combat zones in order to attack targets according to the commander's instructions. That's like straight out of the field manual, dude. I don't know. Uh, it sounded like are still it. you must be a senior enlisted leader. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I got lucky. <laughs> so, <laughs> really, what can I say? Bro, loved it. Learned a lot. Learned a ton. Because you have to follow a process. So as you know, we're in the military, we're all driven by process, certain processes. Even people that think that a uh, close quarter battle is not a process, it is, but it's a muscle memory process. Mm-hmm. And for observers, we have to learn a certain process according to the skill sets to, to the call for fire that you're doing. And you can literally go, this is a process, and you learn it at at a 10th level because you try to master it so quick because you know in combat seconds means life. Yeah. So you're trying to perfect it. And all the training that goes into it is ingraining you, but it becomes a brain it becomes a brain muscle function, more so than a muscle memory function. We used to joke with the infantry that you know, you they're the queen of battle but we're the king of battle and we bring it, we bring it. And so the joke was to, the, the platoon leader, the platoon star would get, wouldn't come to the F, four observers until they had to. You know, they really didn't want to. See, they're like, all right, you, let the boys have some fun. Yeah. Um, but again, you don't know the choices you make in life uh, at the moment, whether it's take the left, take the right, or the center. 
And that was one of the best choices that I, I did, frankly. You made the, uh, the analogy or whatever, queen of battle, king of battle, which I know is former infantrymen, but uh, you want to explain right. <laughs> what that actually means? I think it's a chess analogy. Right, uh, yeah. So, of course, it comes from the old days. When you're talking about who controls the most influence in the battlefield with their assets, artillery at the time can make an influence of battle greater than the queen of battle, which is the infantry. And what's even funnier than that, the, and I don't know exactly, but I believe it was Napoleon Bonaparte who came up with those analogies because he was an artillery guy. Oh. Funny enough, yeah. That's a, that he went to the military academy of France because, to study artillery. And back in the day, he used his artillery so strategically that his battles would be decided before he would launch that man forward. And so that was where the synopsis came from. Of course, within the US military, it started going on. Of course, World War One, another big artillery war. But that's where it kind of comes from, the analogy of Queen of Battle, King of Battle. Oh. But what was funny is, at the time, when you see the, the guys in the training CTP and everything, they're like, oh, okay, I want to do that. So we, we felt like we had to be as good as the guys as well. So, so what you, that you means is as good as the guys. So talk about being in Ranger <laughs> Regiment but not being an infantryman. Oh, that's tough. That's a tough one. Um, I think initially the infantryman in the Ranger Regiment, that's a core. That's really the core point of view that people have of somebody being going into the door, kicking it down, going in first the door, and then cleaning the rooms. That is the essential job of the infantryman to close in and and you know seek and destroy the enemy or whatever, however you want to title it. You know, whatever support role, whether it was us, the comms guys, or whatever the medics, we always wanted to be like them or better than them. That there are simple tasks. Whatever tasks they did, we would train on it, but we wanted to be just as good or better. And some of the guys, actually, some of the guys switched from whatever uh, military occupational skill they were in, and they would go to be level bravos. And the regiment was like all happy, like, all right, yes, we're getting another guy. You know, these guys were, after a ranger school, they could do that. They just switch hmm. back and forth. Uh, I knew a FA officer field cherry officer who said no I'm going to switch branches I'm going to switch from FA to uh, infantry that was very common actually and they were very good officers and the ranger regiment at the time this during GWAT would let them go BPLs while they're still branch as artillerymen and so is oh really they go let them take a ranger regiment. platoon oh yeah okay. uh, that's what Everybody thinks that the regiment is this strict, or was this strict house where everybody's like, oh, kind of tight. You know, yeah, sure, it was like that. But did GWAT really produce what you see today in that environment? And the image that you have today obviously wasn't the same as 20 years ago. And good God, I mean, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, we're talking about 2001. But funny thing is, it goes back to the basics, and that's what the regiment's very, that's one thing a lot of people don't know about the Ranger Regiment, is they're very good at the basics. 
if you build that foundation, you take it up the notch. And people think it's because of advanced skills. No, it's, it's because of those basic skill sets that you build on and then leverage and build upon. That's what makes a Ranger Regiment so good as a unit and so legal. No one's special. Some of us have just mastered the basics. Right. <laughs> That's it. I mean, you know that. <laughs> oh, I know that. Yeah. You, you're in 92 to 15? Yeah, 92 to 15. 92 to 15. So I know we cover this with a lot of guests, but when when we have someone who's pre-9-11 on, we like to talk about before and after. Because you're right after, uh, uh, you're right after um, Desert Storm coming in. Did you do any like Kosovo right. in the late '90s? No, I think the closest thing I we came, I came to was uh, Haiti. You know, obviously. Well, I guess you the, were probably in the army for like a well, year so when the, Gothic Serpent happened too. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and seeing what the heck happened there was really something. Mm. It frankly shocked us as a unit, big time. Yeah. You know, obviously, not just from what happened to the rain, to the Rangers on the ground, but also to the other guys that were on the ground as well. It was a big shock, and it was like almost instantaneously, everything changed. How we trained, there was a lot of it. I would like to say there was a lot of anger and a lot of just disbelief that it happened to to our guys. And so, training became much more intensive. Training became much more. You know, filled with. We are gonna. If we ever get the chance, we're gonna. We're gonna do it right. It became that kind of attitude. You don't know when it's coming, but you're so ready for that call. And that was the attitude pre 9/11, post 9/11. We started changing how we operated. Obviously, again, Roberts Ridge, big influence at the time. Big, big influence. Uh, I was in, I was in Alpha Company first 175 when that when that happened. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I, let me tell you, man. Big influence uh, again in the regiment. It changed everything again. Yeah. As to how we were training and just the regiment was just maturing into this freaking animal. You you know then Jody Nacy came became the regimental sergeant major. He's the one that actually said we don't need no more high and tights. And everybody's like, oh my god. There goes the high tights. <laughs> People are freaking out. <laughs> They're like, oh shit. There was some guy in some platoon said, fuck you, you're fucking getting, still getting your high tights. And I was like, I ain't getting shit. You know. Show, and him, he show up with some back. big fucking mutton chop sideburns. <clears throat> We're oh, in bro, Afghanistan there, there now, dude. Yeah. Oh, dude, Afghanistan, some people would go for full, you know, Indian just to shave it. That was obviously the funniest thing ever. <laughs> like somebody suddenly first sergeant shows up surprisingly. They're like, oh, there's no water for a sergeant. He's like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> so so it, was, it was pretty, but it changed. Again, it changed the influence of what we were doing. And then, of course, OAF, again, changed how we were as a unit because we were just getting so mature and so good at a level that operationally that you started to realize you don't need you don't need to compete with the other guys that you work the other units that you're working with in fact you're probably just as good if not better in certain things as those 
units because they have a special skill set. And of course, so your skill set is to be, as a ranger, is to be perfectionist at doing raids. And another person who had a, who was a big influence was Admiral McRaven. He had a big influence as to the way we operated because he had such a big trust in us. He was like, you know, if I need a job done, I don't, I don't want to see. He would look at the other folks and he was like, I don't want to see you guys there. I'll, I'll pick the Rangers any day of the week. And he started giving us the lead of missions and doing things. And boy, that was, that changed the dynamic the, of the whole way the Ranger Regiment was seen. And not just we knew it, but then seeing the leadership have the faith in us like they did, like that that you could run your own ops, you could do whatever, uh, but you did it right. It was a big influence on us. Um, and again, it changed, but I, th- but I left in 2008. About the time I was at a chat with the Sergeant Major of the, to- of the regiment, the Sergeant Major, time, at the time I was in the regiment headquarters, and he was like, well, he's like, look, you're only gonna, there's only one slot. So obviously you need to go do something else. And I was like, okay, um, what do you think I should do? He's like, well, yeah, I think you should go, go be with one of the special forces group, especially some special forces group because you speak Spanish and all this and all that. And I was like, oh shit! And I was like, oh no, I don't know about those guys, you know. And sure enough, I call up. He's like, don't worry, let let's, let me call the sergeant major over there. So he calls up the sergeant major at some special forces group, and he goes, yep, he'll take he'll take you. You want it? And I, I had to go talk to my then wife about it, and she was like, okay, let's go. So we went and. Let me tell you, I have never met an incredible group of people. <laughs> what was really cool was it matured me as a non-commissioned officer. Because here I am, and they're telling me, okay, you do what you need to do. The responsibility is on you to be as good as you want to be. When the regiment, you knew you had to be good every day, but now here you have the freedom to work on those weakness, weak points you have. I'm personally curious about your point of view because of your job, mm-hmm. you know, what your job entails when the war kicks off and how you see the two different theaters. Because as a forward observer, it's one thing being in the mountains of Afghanistan. It's another thing being in Iraq where a lot of the fighting urbanized pretty quick. Yeah. It's got to be a different it's, job, it's a right? different job. Different, different. You have, you have yeah. to think. I had, in Afghanistan, you can, th- you can think circular. In Iraq, you have to think very much in a 3D fashion as you're looking at things, especially overnight. Okay. Because, I mean, the reality is you're trying to minimize any type of collateral damage and you're trying to affect the right target because if you're not precise in an urban environment, you can cause a lot of dam- unnecessary damage to the environment around you. So. Your tr- right. It's not like World War One where you just fucking fire in that just general fire. direction and you're going to hit a bunch of uniformed enemies. We're going to launch 10,000 rounds here. I mean, until you get a HIMARS shot, and that's a, that amazed me that the damn thing even went into the building. You know, so that was, by the way, HIMARS, uh, sorry for using jargon, it's, uh, it's basically a rocket system and it shoots six rockets and it's GPS guided. And it, I actually saw one hit a building. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was just like, oh my God. Four buildings next to it, it's exact one. I was like, wow, it's a, it's a miracle. So 
flies through the crack in the window. Oh, dude. Uh, that's a, that's a, I, uh, Hellfire. So I help her do that. That was like, damn, that's a damn good pilot. And afterwards, I was talking to him, and he was like, no, um, I actually uh, was aiming in the wrong spot. I had the, the guiding system was off, so I had to aim. I was like, I was praying to God that when I shot it, it was, I was like, oh, great. But yeah, uh, for me, for us, it was always a, we would do a lot of training prior to really get a fundamental understanding of what our jobs are going to be. Uh, depending what theory you were going to, you were being you were being trained in different scenarios to face those scenarios at a different level. So it um, it really would change a lot how you look at the environment. It's all the basics, but you were trained to those scenarios. So, like in Iraq, and I didn't go to Iraq until I was six. Commanders started changing. In, Experienced commanders, experienced operators started changing the way they would think about because then became about the speed and decisive action. Had to be faster than the enemy. And unfortunately, sometimes you could, you weren't that fast because it, I think it was 05 when the uh, most of the foreign fighters started trickling into Iraq. That was about that time. And the suicide bombers started going into buildings. They would chase us. They would literally chase, well, it wasn't me personally, but it would just chase a unit. You, know, you would go in a building, somebody would come out of the building, go behind you, and then and they would explode themselves behind you. And that was getting a lot of guys hurt. So again, you have to, you're, you're just readapting all the time. Readapting to the scenarios and to the threat and what you're trying to accomplish. But everybody probably remembers the 24-7 INS guy that we used to hear. It's actually a McChrystal coin statement and he wasn't joking the Iraq had everything with us in Afghanistan we were like oh my god I hope I get an asset you know we used to call you know there was like I said I mean no but you were literally fighting for if you were doing missions and another unit was doing missions you were like literally tossing up a coin okay who's getting the assets so, so again you have to learn I'll tell you I wouldn't change any of the experiences because later on as I got senior uh, especially in a special forces group that help build a story to when you're requesting assets and what you're doing and how you manage the, the fight. Because managing the fight was a big thing for us, especially in Afghanistan. In the that's a very interesting difference because you know the Ranger Regiment gets built to hit raids, maybe stay overnight a couple days. But for the special forces teams, they were out. I mean, I'm not talking like three or four days. They were out for 10, 15 days. And, yeah. and bro, you know, when I, people are like, oh, that's great. I don't know about that. But if they got into a fight, they'd be like, I'm staying. We're going to keep on fighting here. But, again, that's a, to me, it's a difference. I know it's a long over-explained, but to me, that was, if somebody asked me what's harder, Afghanistan or Iraq, Afghanistan, ten times harder. Uh, Iraq, it's 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 manageable because at least you have an idea. Afghanistan, no. I I I, I met some the locals that I met the translator. I feel not to get political, but and it's not political, but the people that were there supporting us, which is incredible human beings risking their lives every day. Some of them were killed with us. Others were wounded, and. You know, seeing what I, you see in the news that's going on, it's just, 
it's just terrible. You talking about the headline from a couple days yeah. ago? The, oh. the commandos getting executed by the Taliban That's really sad. after surrendering. That's really sad. That's really sad. That 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 one got to me. I'm not gonna lie, that one got to me because I used to train with the commandos. I remember the first Kandak when it was stood up. That one got to me because those guys, they they fight. I mean, they fight, and to see that, they 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 didn't deserve that at all. But we cannot do anything about it right now. Hey everyone, quick break in the action uh, to tell some of our new or returning listeners about how to engage more closely with or support the show. Uh, our website, as you know, is thankyounowwhat.com. If you go to the website, we have our entire backlog of episodes and descriptions. Uh, you should also subscribe on your favorite podcast player uh, and go ahead and catch any of those that you haven't already caught. Uh, if you're on our website, you can see links to our Twitter and our Instagram. Uh, both are quite predictably thank you now what. Uh, at thank you now what um, we also have a link for a t-shirt uh, if you want to swag out with some thank you now what stuff you can use the feedback form on our website to give us uh, any of your thoughts uh, you can also email us directly at thank you now what at gmail.com ben and i both check that uh, for any show feedback if you really like what we're doing and you want to contribute to the show uh, financially you're going to see some links on the website for a paypal contribution or a patreon subscription Description. Patreon starts at just a dollar an episode. Uh, click the link on the website or go to patreon.com slash thank you now what to see more. Uh, interestingly, this week on Thursday, the 22nd of July, we are going to do um, an evening Zoom chat with all of our patrons uh, and some of our former guests. So it's kind of a grab bag of who shows up but if you're a patron uh, you'll get that link and you can come chat with us thursday evening maybe uh, if people like it we'll do more of these um, you can also tell us what you want on patreon on patreon if you want please know that when you share with us in the cost of doing business uh, whatever doesn't go straight to production costs gets redirected to nonprofits that support or honor veterans. Uh, so never in, in Ben in my pockets, uh, only paying for costs associated with the show. And then last year we were able to give uh, more than half uh, back away to um, uh, you know nonprofits that a lot of them we've actually featured on the show. And if you check out our website, you can go to the nonprofits page and see some of those. Um, <clears throat> expect this list to grow very sincere thank you to everybody who not only supports us in those ways but anybody who's out there even just listening uh, engaging with us on social media uh, talking to us giving us feedback about what you like and how we can make a better show or telling somebody else uh, that you know who might like it um you know, word of mouth is the best form of advertising, as we all know. Finally, uh, make sure you are subscribed on your favorite podcast player. And if you have a second, go ahead and give us a rating. We really appreciate those, too. Uh, we're past 50. We're trying to make it to 100 on Apple. But the other ones, I'm sure they're doing great. Thanks for listening to us, and let's get back to the episode. So you talked about getting a little more senior getting some more gray hairs and they having to stuff you in the talk uh taking you taking you out of the uh, r off the ground oh, yeah. so i want to talk about what the i want to talk about the point where you're like well shit i gotta hang up the uniform at some oh, point well. here you know i'm not just going in the talk i'm getting out uh yeah 
That's. Are you one of the guys who has a plan or no plan? I did not have a plan initially until I started talking to different people. I made my decision to retire June of 2013. It was right after the, it was during the end of the deployment and I was like, okay, so something's changing. And I realized what was coming, which is back in, I was like, okay, we're gonna go back to the, to the 90s army. I don't wanna do that again. I'm still young, mm. let me think about it. And so I didn't know what I was gonna do and then I just started thinking about it and I was like, okay, I can go be a contractor. Because I, I was talking to different people that were doing contractor, but it's like, I don't wanna do that. I'm back in the same cycle. Yeah, like a security contractor, like carrying a gun for a living. Right. And, you know, well, for me, it was a different type of contractor, which was, again, I was just like, I don't want to do that because I'm going back to the same cycle. And so I started talking to people. I started talking to my ex-wife who really helped. You know, I got to give her a shout out because she was really supportive. Finally, making a decision to retire was tough. Well, you're at 23 years and, uh, you know. Uh, I like your spirit and saying you're still young at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, you think uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When does finance and banking? Are we not there yet? Or when does when does this like come into your view? It comes into my view after I meet Bill Golden. He we reconnect, and so we reach out and he said, "Hey, we have this program. Come to New York. Check it out." What's the worst that could happen? And by the way, I, gra- I, got, I got my degree when I was in military. So I had a graduate in healthcare administration. Again, totally different than anything else I would do. Yeah. So, you know. I was going to ask you about that too. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I got. It took Especially when you're going up against uh, the Russian math Olympian and the other kids from MIT and wherever the hell. Gross. And you. Uh, and you you decided to get your degree in healthcare management. I'm sure that helped you. Oh, it sure you. did. It sure did. But I'll, I'll tell you another funny uh, <laughs> certainty about degrees in Wall Street. Turns out, sixty percent of the of the people that work in Wall Street have liberal arts degrees. Sixty percent. Sixty percent. Yeah, really? that I found a statistic that I was like, that's pretty funny. And probably about twenty percent are STEM. And then there's the other 20% who are like hardcore PhD people. You're like, oh my God, this guy's a rocket scientist. Like, in, like you know, yeah. you know that, my respect, but that's just not me, never. But um, so, yes, I came to New York. Bill introduced me to an incredible group of team members. We talked about the program at the bank. I was really surprised, honestly. I was just like, wow, this is, this is really cool. So just to set the context a little more, we're talking about like a, uh, so all the big banks here in New York have these like veteran internship programs, which is different from like a regular program. It's like a, uh, you know, it's for people who are further along in their career, they have some life experience, they have a degree and they're coming in, they're just career switchers. Mm -hmm. And these these institutions have like a limited number of spots and, you know, it's actually pretty competitive. And uh, you get in, you do a few rotations, and then you basically, as you said, get drafted uh-huh. um, by whichever functional area wants you. Right. You know, and then you're, and now you're, now you're at the bank. Uh-huh. We talked about your 
degree, but also like there weren't a lot of enlisted guys doing this at the time. No, it was me. Yeah, is my right? Yeah, there was uh, me and one other guy. We were only two enlisted guy. He was a he was a Navy submarine warfare guy. So, so when you talk about this, like uh, the competitive nature of it, how did you have to like network your way in and and, and well, maybe that's not the right way to ask it, but like. How how far outside your comfort zone did you have to get to actually like pursue this thing and for it to become real? I had to be who I was and be honest about it. And I think that set a level where they said, okay, I'm getting him, this individual or her. Mm-hmm. And I like who they are. I didn't understand the psychology of interviewing until later when I was taught that at the bank. And a lot of people are like, oh, it's because of my background, what I studied, or anything else. Look, on paper, everybody's got an MBA from Harvard or whatever. But it, at the end of the day, it comes down to you as an individual that we want to have with the team. And I didn't know that until afterwards. But the advice I got from Bill and others was, when I interviewed, be myself. That was it. And when they asked me, like, obviously, the first three questions you always ask about in an interview at a bank is who's the CEO, what's the stock price, and what's the market cap. Why? Because that tells you how much research they, they did on your firm. It tells you whether they want to be there. So that, that three basic questions lets you know immediately where they're going to be. Okay? Culturally is a fit. Where at the bank that I went to just it was an incredible fit. I'm not saying others weren't, but just for me it was just a better decision. That way. And I was told just be myself. But bring it down to a seven, because I was always at 10, 12, 14. <laughs> I was, you know, of course, I was a ranger. I was still a ranger, but now I've learned to tone it down. You know, so, um, but that really, that really did it. Uh, just bringing it down to that level in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think that's what helped me. Again, learning, being in several other interviews afterwards, I learned the psychology of the interview. And it comes down to that. We're going to fly to China. We're going to be sitting next to each other. Do I really want to be next to you? It sounds simple, but it's complicated. Especially when I go interview some of you know, the internship. You know, you go to college and college recruiting, which was a different experience in itself when they asked me to do it. You know, these incredibly gifted kids are very smart. It's just asking me all these questions about... Like, what's the biggest deal you worked on? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. What do you like to do? Oh, I, I don't like to do... I like to do whatever you want me to like right. to do. Right, I'm like, no. Can I have a job? No, I, I'm like, no. I mean, I, I got to be able to have a beer with you afterwards, bro. So, again, I just went into the interview just with myself. I, you know, they asked me some questions, obviously, about finance, but more about the markets. And I was able to answer those, I guess, at a very good level because I did get the mm-hmm. offer afterwards. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. You talk a little bit about what you do, like in the ecosystem of finance. Sure. Because there's a lot of people, not even like people from the military, but just they think about Wall Street and they're like, buy, sell, buy, sell, <laughs> buy, you sell. Know? Which I think that is a little bit of your world, but it's not to it's not, it's not to sim- oversimplify. No, no, because there's a bunch of different things you can do. Yeah, exactly. Um, so my particular role, I have three products that I do sales for. I sell to institutional 
corporate family offices in the Latin America region to include the Caribbean. It's a product sales role. So you have to get into the deep knowledge of those products and be able to understand how they fit within the client that you're, you're, you're discussing with. It's a long sales process versus a short-term sales process because a sales process, a short-term, again, like I said earlier, I'm looking for to wedge you versus to go out and date with you. And that, is, um, to some of them, I sound as a sexist analogy, but what I'm trying to say is I want a relationship with you. I want to develop that. And, I want to, and I'm here for you as a, as a friend and also as a provider as well. Because that, I mean, so that's, that's what I basically, in the grand scheme of things, do. Now, is it always successful? No, no. I mean, I'm competing against some pretty big boys. But I differentiate myself because of the way I drive my relationship. I have clients that have left the big institutions to come to us because they said, man, we like you. Let's do this. That's really it. And that's the way I try to indirectly influence that decision. I love my job. It's fun. COVID obviously changed a lot of things. Uh, before, yeah. yeah, I mean, before I was, yes, I was traveling constantly, you know, and really enjoying it, seeing the client visits. And, you know, Brazil was a great experience. Mexico, I, I totally love Mexico. Jamaica, uh, Trinidad, Tobago, obviously Dominican Republic, uh, Miami, Panama, Colombia, and this just. Last year, I was supposed to travel to Argentina, Chile, Peru. So, but of course, COVID threw that out the window. But I, I really love my job because of the people that I work with and the challenges we face. And I always said this too during when I started banking. I said I need to go through something so in the financial system, so radical and earth shattering, that I learn more than I do when things are going well. Because that changes you as a professional, how you look at things. And I think it deepens the relationship you have with the client. So you've been at it like six and a half years. So how do you, what has the gradient been like from this ultra steep learning curve at the beginning to now you enjoy it so much? And I'm sure, I don't want to say it feels like second nature or anything like that, but when does it become natural? It, it started becoming natural two years ago. However, I ch- oh wow yeah. Right? However, I challenge myself to learn and learn and learn because I never feel comfortable. There's always something. That's the the reason why I like the products is because it changes every year. So every year is a little nuances that I have to learn, get a hold of, to be able to articulate it to. During the pitch, so for me or anybody that I know to say that they feel comfortable a hundred percent of the time, that's I would say that's not the case. I think you feel the pitch gets better overall. Like I take a, I am always open to constructive criticism internally and externally. So as for feedback, and there was a little bit of a time last year where. My pitches, my conversations were really dropping in the quality of. They were lacking quality, and I got the feedback, you know, from my from my colleagues, and and I was like, oh God, I didn't notice that. Okay, so how would you do it? So you're just improving little things, 
refining, you know, getting me that rough edge off. Like I said, two years ago, it started becoming more natural, where I could really just talk about it without even looking at the deck. And now it's taking a step back, being much more empathetic, listen more, uh, have a good understanding, and knowing by the body language when they're going to say no, or now, because of COVID, over the phone, it's by the tone of voice that they say no, or yes. So it's like, okay, now I'm much, I'm becoming a little sharper. But that's also thanks to my colleagues that I work with because they, they've given me such good feedback. And that goes of which we don't want to hear about. I mean, obviously, Rick Dahlia calls it radical transparency, but you and I, you know, we used to know it as a knife hand. And you would get that knife hand on you. That would start off. That. <laughs> that would start off. The four finger point. Right there and there, you know, it's like, oh, shoot, you know, dead cockroach right there. <laughs> so, but uh, I think that even some of the people that I've met in the industry, very senior, much more experienced than me, they say, hey, I'm always trying, I'm always learning. Um, you know, and I have a passion for tech. So last year, my big thing was to learn a lot more about the blockchains, the cryptocurrencies, how they work, and that has become my thing. You know, uh, last year, and then obviously the real estate stuff, like I said earlier. I'm always looking at something, but within the bank, I think if you feel comfortable, it's time for you to move. It's an environment of very ambitious people, very, very, very smart people, 2010 smarter than obviously me. And I think they realize people leave because they feel uncomfortable and want to, they feel too comfortable and want a new experience. That's the way I see it. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's a romantic view of it, but that's just the way I see it. I like your point on the importance of being open with feedback. Yeah. It made me think of an episode with uh, Nelson Miller. He's an old retired Navy SEAL. He goes, I used to let the guys know he goes, I, I used to let them know what they were doing wrong uh, because they needed, to, they needed to know. And if and if you were doing great, cool, that's how you're supposed to be anyway. Right. And I think I've found from the military and especially special operations, I used to just get 9 out of 10 improves and maybe 1 out of 10, hey, yeah, you didn't fuck this up too bad. Right. <laughs> um, and... And that was one of the biggest cultural shifts in that now you have to give someone a compliment oh before you give them a correction, but then you have to follow it up with another compliment. Uh, I'm not very good at compliments. Taking or giving? Because I'm shitty at taking compliments yeah, still. Yeah, it's yeah. something that's fucked up with me. Yeah. I, as soon as I hear a compliment, I'm like, what's wrong with you? So I get really nervous. But if I, like when, when we have a win at the for within the product, the first be, the first thing I say is I send an email out blast to everybody as a team win. And then if somebody comes back and says me, congratulations, I'm like, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. You know, that's just me. But again, you're right. It goes back to the to the days. Even if you think you did something right, there was like somebody like, excuse me, charge. Uh, that was like about five meters off the the target. I was like, what are you trying to say? Okay, bro. It's a high Mars. What do you want me to do? It has a kill radius of 100 meters. What do you want me to do? <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, that's, that's us. I think that's every veteran. You talked a little bit about doing like campus recruiting, which is pretty interesting. But 
I think you also talked about mentoring other people who are coming out. How important has that been to you? Mentoring for me is very important. I am there for any veteran that's coming out and wants to talk about their their plan, what my experiences have been like, and I'm very open about it. I tell them the good, bad, ugly, and I don't hold anything back. Um, I'm happy to, uh, you know, mentorship is a great word for it. I call it, I called it, I call it more helping them like they help me. You know, people ahead of me that came through this before us that, that helped me. I have to give back. And the only way I can give back is to the veteran community that's coming out, that's coming into finance. That's one way. Or not, or just getting out. Just getting out. That, that, that's, that's more important to me because, they're, they're, you know, we're, us veterans, we're used to a structured environment. And now we're out in the big wild world. The real world, there's no structure. You have to build it on your own. So you have to find your passions as to what you want to do to put food on the table and then later on hopefully being a success, whatever you do. So I do believe very heavily in that mentorship slash conversations that you should do it. Um, The college recruiting trips were always funny. Uh, My first one was to Harvard to an MBA program uh, in 2015. I was like, what the hell? Why am I going to this? And they're like, well, you're a veteran. And everybody said that you should go. And I was like, yeah, Harvard, MBA, uh, great. And, Are you solving equations on the chalkboard in the hallway? Yeah, that was me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I show up and the recruiter goes, just go talk to the veteran group. And I was like, all right, cool, whatever. And I show up and there's this kid that I that just got out of Ranger Regiment and is at Harvard, at a Harvard MBA. I'm like, holy shit, all right, this is gonna be great. You know, and then I get there and I see this pilot I knew from back in the day. I was like, what the hell is going on here? And I was like, okay, this is gonna be a really cool conversation. So I was like, all right, let's crack open some beers. You know, let's do this. And then, but I forgot there was a panel coming up. So, oh, you get tanked for the I panel? I got tanked for the panel. I did that mistake. That was my first recruiting mistake. I mean, true story. I was I was pretty tech, and but I can hold it. You know, I You're like banking is great. No, I didn't do that. Come on. No, but there was this big crowd. They're all there, and next, and I get to meet the other recruiter. You know, people that got set up there. There's like four managing directors from Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, City, and I'm like, and they're all former. They're all veterans as well. And I was like, oh shit. You know, here I am hammered. And I was sitting next to this guy from Credit Suisse, uh, who's now, he's, he's a big wicked Credit Suisse, it's pretty funny. And, and he was like, dude, how many did you have? I was like, well, I think I had four beers and a, sh- a shot of uh, rum. He's like, oh, it's, damn it, what the hell did I didn't think about that? He's like, I'm like, okay, be honest, dude, how, how many of these do you have? Do you do so? He's like, yeah, I graduated from here, don't worry about it. It's just, just you're good, you're good. I was like, this is gonna be awesome, and so we're going through the chat, and of course, you know it's veterans, so you can be yourself. And then they get what questions to me. Yeah. I was like, I was like, guys, here's what I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna be very honest with you. Very few of you right here are gonna to go to a private equity firm or a venture capital firm from this MBA. You're not that good. You need the basics. This MBA just gave you. You're paying 200k for a relationship. 
this MBA opens up the doors because of these relationships, but you will not be going straight to a private equity job. If you do, consider yourself very lucky, and then open the doors for the veterans that are following. You need a basic training environment. After that, congratulations, go do something, go recruit for that other job. And I sit down, and the MD's like, he gets up, he picks up, and he's like, he's fucking right. And I was like, oh, true story. That's literally how it was. <laughs> he literally said, fucking drink. Then afterwards, we're all walking out, and he's like, okay, this is how I pick my guys. We go out, we have conversation. I know they're smart, they're cute, they're smart. But the difference is, am I actually going to enjoy having the beer with them? And I was like, oh, man, dude, I was right. He's like, good job. That's why I love you and listen, guys. But then after that, I did some recruiting trips to NYU, obviously in the city, Columbia. I'm a big fan of Columbia because one of my financiers went there, not Warren Buffett. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just like the environment there, living close to Columbia University. I really love what they did, especially for the veterans that were going through to Columbia. A lot of people don't know the amount of things Columbia University does for the veterans, especially the enlisted side. Um, so for me, that was very special. Yeah, you're talking to one, by right? The way. So you know what I mean. And again, people see this Ivy Lake; they just don't think it does these kind of things. But Columbia is incredibly a wonderful place for veterans to go to, to college. So it's so, so is UPenn. Again, it's not talked about Cornell, but again, it's not talked about Yale. Who wants to be in New Haven? Well, the best thing about Columbia is living in New York City, the West Side, and being an adult. But getting a top-notch education. Exactly. What's even better is retiring from the military and living in the Upper West Side and coming to New York and living in New York. <laughs> so, exactly. So, but yeah, so, no, but yeah, those recruiting trips were really cool, great for me. Meeting, uh, you know, veterans that were just recently getting out, having conversations. You know, for me, that mentorship is really important. And you know, I would tell go up to the bank and to manager at the time and I was like hey I'm going to a recruiting trip at the school do you mind if I take some of the veterans out for, for drinks and dinner so that's the way I would do it just create an environment that was more relaxed and they could talk freely um, I think that helps us out and them out a lot more just to be you know they're going to ask the same questions what's this like if they ask me what do you think of investment banking I'm going to give them a very honest answer what do you think about sales and trading I'll give an honest answer but it's not to scare them away or to pump them up. It's more to give them the reality. Because some people will probably, if there's one thing they can say about me in my conversations with them, is that I'm very honest and I don't hold back. And that's the same way I expect you to interview with me as well, you know? One thing I've noticed about mentorship, just in general, but also, uh, you know, when it comes to answering the call for other vets, because they tend to look at you is it just goes in one direction. What I mean is if someone is willing to give you advice and you are at different stages in your career or transition or whatever, you know, it's rare that you can like just directly help them back at some other point. The way you help them is by paying what they did for you forward to somebody else down the line. It, 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 it flows in one direction. Right most of the time mm -hmm. and you know i think i've been like very inspired by their 
by other people I've met over the last, you know, six years for me, mm-hmm. in that I'll try to make whatever time I have available, you know, knowing that you don't have all the time in the world, but be straight up with people, tell them what you can tell them and, and what they have to figure out for themselves. And then my only ask for them is like, when you get to a point, someone's asking you about the same stuff, just like pick up the phone. I answer cold LinkedIn messages. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, a couple have come through the podcast and some just haven't or been off a whatever. I don't know. You threw a hole in the wall, but, um, you know, let's spend 15 minutes on the phone. And if I can kind of give you, you know, a bit of a steer in one direction and and it helps you out. Great. And I actually enjoy uh, I really enjoy doing it. Or sometimes I, you know, I I get I, I mean hate to curse, but I can scare the shit out of them about the realities of the job, especially in investment banking. <laughs> they go like, oh. That might be what they they're need. They're probably like, oh my God, really? I'm like, yeah, what do you expect, bro? I mean, so they, they have a hazardous, I, because I call the bonuses they get in, in investment banking, I call them hazardous pay, <laughs> hazardous duty pay. <laughs> because yeah. those, oh, but they're, again, not talking smack about them. There's just some great people there and they, 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 yeah. they do some great work, you know. But yes, yeah, you know, it's fun. Or like, uh, hey, can you talk at? Can you talk? You know, around seven thirty-eight at night. Okay, cool. Yeah, hey, I got to go back to work. They go, what? (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? They're like, what? They're like, I'm going back to work. They're like, but it's right. What do you mean? It's also like this is the life, dude. It doesn't ease up once you get out. No, no. I think it's also setting certain expectations. As you said, um, I had a gentleman, he was getting out 20 years and he wanted to do investment banking. I was like, no, you're not. And he's like, what, what, what do you mean? I'm like, okay, let me ask you a simple question. All right. I'm going to ask you a couple questions and you'd be depending on those answers. You're going to start to realize where I'm going. Uh, one, are you, do you have, are you married and do you have a family? Yes and yes. Okay, two, great. Two, what time does your significant other expect you to be home? Because you need to be home and take care of what's really most important is a family. And they're like, well, 11 o'clock. I'm like, yeah, definitely take an investment banker, brother, because you will be coming in as an associate in investment bank and your job will be to correct PowerPoint and look at the font size 13 and change it for Calibra to the mountain face, beautiful, artistic, apple, you know, uh, font. And by the way, that that period that's missing, yes, that's going to get you to get shouted at, and you have to redo the deck. So think about what you're asking for and be realistic with that. You can probably do the same. You can If you were to go to... Global, become a treasury service sales officer. You can do the same amount of work, less amount of work, but earn the same amount of pay as investment banking. And by the way, the hours are probably better. I had an old buddy get in touch recently. Who knows if he listens to the episode, but he goes, hey man, can you look at my resume? Sure, do it all the time. I said, first, we got to, kind of determine what you're actually going for before I'm going to even start looking. Right. And he goes, I just want a nine to five at like a big company, middle management, because I want to spend time with my wife and kids. It's perfect. 
perfect. Yeah. Like the fact that you can come out, the fact that a fucking hard charging green beret can come out and say that to me is great yeah. because you know what you want to do. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, after a couple of years, you may decide, holy shit, you know, I need something a little more competitive, but that's the most honest that someone's been with me. Coming you up. appreciate that. Just like I do. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a, that's a, I appreciate that a lot more, you know, because then I can say, okay, I got you. I, I can get you there. Let's talk about one thing I missed. Sure. So I was asking around about military. Were you in a recruiting commercial? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was in a recruiting commercial. Uh, oh, man. First, where do I get a copy? Second, <laughs> tell me all about oh, it. Oh, God. Uh, um, I was in a recruiting commercial 2002. Uh, <laughs> uh, just hit me up. I'll send you a copy. <laughs> I did it in Spanish and English. Oh, nice. Um, it was uh, it was quite interesting. <laughs> God, it must have been Bill Golden who told you about this Spanish, this commercial or, or Marshall. No, it's so. Oh bad. God. Uh, <laughs> this is a mule. Chris, love the guy, but he uh, he that that's my weak point. That's probably the one thing in my military career that I don't ever want to mention or talk about. I mean, I look like a, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> just bad. <laughs> you look like a squared away NCO, I, I'm sure. I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, probably at the time I... So most military commercials, they're like quick cuts. Yeah. Like quick little snippets of everybody doing like every kind of job. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... Cook, parachute rigger, infantry, right. uh, helicopter pilot, uh, maintenance crew, tanker, and it's like two seconds of right. each. Unless you're in the Marines and you fight a dragon with a sword, <laughs> or you're in the Navy and everyone's a SEAL except <laughs> almost nobody's a SEAL. Right. Or the Air Force, and we got some cool toys, you know. Uh, with the Air Force, you know, you get a Herman Miller chair. Yeah, that's true. That's about, that's about as it. In the office, yeah. yeah. Somebody's going to Google that right now. Boy, what the hell is a Herman Miller chair? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So what are you? So what are you doing in the commercial? So in the commercial, my role is to be a, a leader to a young man who's about to jump out of an airplane for the first time. So I, oh, I, nice. I give him the the strength within himself to be have the courage to jump out of the out of a perfectly good helicopter. Um, okay. And. It was really, again, it was one of those things that I didn't talk about, but it was it was quite funny. It was filmed at Fort Bragg and also uh, California, Santa Monica, and then up in the hills of, of Los Angeles. Um, the really cool part for me personally was when I was taken to do the voice at the studio. I'm at the studio, uh, again, it's after 9-11, and... The director says, hey, there's a friend of mine that wants to come over and say hello. And I was like, oh, sure. Hey, cool. You know, and he opens the door. It's Eddie Murphy. Oh, shit. And I literally look at him and I'm like, you're the fuck you guy. And I was like, and he's like, man, nobody said that to me. Wow. What's going on? And, we just, and he was so cool. So down to earth. And I was like, oh, my God, this is Eddie Murphy. 
do you, you do not realize it. I learned my first curse words in English because of you. And that's, that, that's, that's a true story. I, I learned my first curse words watching him. And my dad was like, don't ever say those words. And I was like, uh, you know, watching Raw and all the other specials that he did. I mean, who can forget Buckwheat back in the day? Or James Brown, Hot Tub. So you should, if you're going to Google something, go check that out. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Uh, but it's him. And I was just like, oh, my God, what an incredible experience. Uh, there was a, another cool experience that, because of that, was uh, at his restaurant. I was outside uh, smoking a cigarette. And here comes Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg comes next to me. And I didn't know who, I look at him, I'm like, and he's like, hey, man, can, can I buy my cigarette? I was like, yeah, cool. And then I looked. And uh, Dirk Diggler strolls up. Yeah, I kept up. Well, I was thinking of his uh, what was the song he had again oh my god it's just good vibrations Marky Mark and the Funky right. Bunch good vibrations right. good vibrations and but it, is that it because yeah. that's also a Beach Boys yeah. song but he's talking about yeah. like he's talking about like partying without doing drugs and you know showing off his abs but, well yeah at the time I mean he was the Catholic client model I mean I was like dude I'll never get to be that good you know unless I go to ranger school and then I become, become like a death trap afterwards so <laughs> you know but yeah so those were really cool experiences about the commercial that's what I really liked about it and the people that I met were so nice uh, to to me and the other soldiers that were doing it it was really really interesting experience what were your lines <laughs> uh, Sar- Sergeant Guillermo Ravello Yo soy el army. That was in Spanish. Uh, it was so in English. It would be Sergeant Guillermo Ravello, Army of One. So, uh, that was the Army of One. One. <laughs> so yeah. Oh okay. yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't. What'd you say to the dude, the paratrooper? I just looked at him like this and just went, just nodded down. That was it. <laughs> Does that get you an IMDb page or? No. Come no. on. No, no, I was paid a dollar a day. That's because that was my per diem. <laughs> it was like great, you know. But they did have some good catering. I'll say that. Hey, let me tell you something. Ben has probably run into a lot of people who are like, this is the wrong fucking caviar. <laughs> what is this bullshit? This shrimp is one day old. No thanks. <laughs> I, I, I still can't eat uh, spicy tuna rolls because I'd get those like at the end of the day when I oh, was, yeah. like, didn't have much money and I'd like scoop up the leftovers and take it home for dinner. Not always the oh. best thing. So oh. I just can't handle them anymore. But yeah, there was great oh. food and great leftovers. You know, it's funny because we're having this conversation as I think about it more. I hear- God, New York, the food in New York, and uh, just having the experiences that I did in New York, the uh, the ramen, best ramen I ever had. The ramen? Yeah, yeah. And it, you know who loves ramen is, uh, I'll cut this out, but the guy's like, hey, you want to go out to lunch? Sure. sure. He picks some shit hole in the wall. What's it called? Ramen What's place. it called again? The, the little food, the little dragon, fighting dragon or something like that? It was like uh, little dragons kick ass ramen. If I find it, I'll, I'll send it to you. But I will send you the uh, the commercial so you can laugh at me more. And thank you very much. Oh, seriously? I'll send it to you. It's pretty funny. And thanks again, Chris. You know, appreciate it.
Right. Yeah, it's just don't, if you publish it on the website, I really kind of, I don't know what to do. <laughs> we, we have an Instagram. We oh, great. I'll, I'll definitely go there. Yeah. Yeah, pass it to me because that is it. We might get we might get some people to enlist, man. You're gonna fire them up. I just want to see what you look like 20 years ago. jeez, uh, do I have? I would have to look because it was a, it was a shock. Mm. It was a shock. I was pro, I was probably weighing about 155. Uh, so medium regular was was a little bit big for me. <laughs> All right, let's get you out of here. Sure. After I ask you the show question, sure. which we saved to the end, I don't know if you heard this on the uh, on the other episodes. If you took a listen, but I gotta I gotta ask you, uh-huh. who are you today if you never served? Who would I be today if I never served? Whoa, I think I would have been probably today. I would have been at a robotics company somewhere in Boston, California, working on interesting problems and hopefully doing some good, not just my life, but the the people that I care about as well. That's probably where I, that's where I envisioned myself when I was a young kid graduating high school, going into college. That's a very good question. It's a tough question. I, for this may be a little bit off topic, but for me personally, as a son of immigrants, coming to the United States and learning English, the experiences I had, the people I met, I just couldn't, I would have a real hard time to see myself doing anything other than what I did. I have a deep, profound appreciation of our country and the flag and what it stands for and the values that this country has. Where me, the son of immigrants that can't speak a living English, uh, you know, 12 years later, goes into the military, serves our country for 23 years, then retires, goes into a global bank job, is doing well, just enough just to give myself, keep the food on the table, but it's living that American dream that we all think about. I couldn't see myself doing anything else, but if I was, you take me back and I didn't make that choice, that's probably where I would be. Probably bored of shit doing that. I don't know, man, robotics now, they can do, they got robots who can do like dance moves and stuff. Maybe you'd be doing that. Maybe, maybe. Teaching them to break dance. So you have the, yeah, you got the real world breakdance experience. These kids nowadays, they just have to look at videos. I wouldn't be doing that all day. There'd be a robot. <laughs> there would be right, one right there in Times Square t- taking out the, the cardboard box and doing it. They used to have a dance called the robot. Now they got robots that can dance. Yeah. And somebody would be like, oh, that guy's a genius. No, I'm not. I was just, just trying to improve my moves, man. <laughs> so... No, this, this is fun. this has been fun, bro. This is really fun. Uh, you made me think there for a minute. Man, that's that was a good question. That's a really good question. Well, we try. Yeah. No, this is this is fun. Like I said, I've seen some of the previous episodes, and I was like, "Well, that's really cool," you know, um, because for me. And seeing how everybody's telling their story and what they're doing is so so awesome, you know. 
I think us as a, as a veteran community, we, if we pull together and just continue to do the right things that we do for, for ourselves and our families and our country and for our, our professional roles, it becomes a much better, it becomes a much better society overall. And, you know, sure, we're, we're constantly challenging certain things, but hey, that's the beauty of life. Uh, but if there's one thing that the country can always depend on, it's a veteran community to try to pull it up and make it better, I would say. Uh, and whether that's mentoring, whether it's talking about to the other veterans about their experiences, whether it's the stories of what we had in the military, I think we all can have that laughter about certain situations you know, we've all been in and how do we pull ourselves out, and you know, us as a community, coming together more and more to do what's right for the country and for our fellow citizens um, as well. And, and so my challenge to every veteran now is think about not just a vet, how we're going to help out the veteran community uplift itself, you know, with all, even with all the issues that we have within the veteran community, but also how we can help our, our fellow citizens as well. You know, um, I know a big hot topic last year was about, you know, racism and this and that. And I'll say this, there was a, in the military, all I saw was green. That's you know, my first room as a kid from West Virginia. I can tell you that. Uh, so all I saw was green the entire time. I never had any experience, never knew, understood any of the experiences. You know, politics, no, we were always joking about politics. It really wasn't a thing. So it wasn't divisive. But the thing that brought us together was always the same thing, which is a common goal of good, the mission. And, yeah. you know, we as a veteran community, we need to establish a mission that we need to have as a community and that is the mission that we need to strive for as a community yeah I think that will radically change the way things we do things and so the country will will, will move on I mean we're less than 1% of the community well maybe 2% of the, the population that's it so let, let's just go out let's just do something I'm not saying be politically active. I'm just talking about do what's right and show, you know, fellow citizens what right looks like and, and go from there. It makes me think of when we're talking about the importance of mentorship. For a few years, it was just me telling my buddies or people I already know what it was like on the outside, you know, like. For like Brooks from Shawshank Ooh. and <laughs> yeah well, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say that because you know, we all know how Brooks uh, so. yeah. I don't want to get dark yeah. here but uh, uh, like Andy Andy's Andy Andy, probably Andy's good one. but um, yeah anyway uh, and then after a couple of years it turned into me talking to just any veteran right you know, I didn't have to know the person or I could just, I was being introduced, cold email, whatever, um, and just always pick up. And then lately, it's just become anybody. Right. So I, and, and that's had a, uh, you know, positive impact on me because I'm no longer just categorized as a vet who can talk to other vets and it's like now i'm just a professional who can talk to people who want some guidance or have some questions sure 
and, and kind of, I don't know, not shed that skin, but not be constrained by that box anymore, right. which has been meaningful for me. The experiences I have with people now are becoming, are feeding me to do better sometimes. Especially when you talk to that person that's about to get out. You're like, oh, yeah. Like talk, they're just really curious. They're just hungry, you know, like a hungry private asking you questions about how to do things and you're just teaching them as the NCO. So now we're, we're turning into that phase slowly. But, but realize, we have to realize, there's people much senior than us that have much more experience than us that are in our 20,000 times more successful than us that can do the same thing. We could always do a lot more for each other as a community, a better community. Um, but I think it's also super cool to see other things going on. Like there was a gentleman recently from, uh, he's the CEO for Galaxy Digital uh, Access, which is one of the hedge funds that actually does cryptocurrency trading. He used to be an Army Huey pilot. I didn't know that. And the guy is like very successful. So again, it's one of those things where you see that mentorship from. That's the community I'm talking about. Just being that light and saying, I'm, I want to do more within the community. And, you know, whoever does a pa- who's ever done a podcast or listening to a podcast, I will say this. Uh, don't be afraid to reach out. No, nine times out of ten, nobody's going to say no. Like, oh, I'm too old. They're literally going to say, listen, right now it's not a good time. Just schedule a time. Okay? That, and that's it. 30 minutes on the phone with yeah. you is means more to me than, you know, an hour with a client that's going to, that probably will pass out. So that that's my message to the community. And here's the thing I would say, I'll tell everybody, don't, don't let your, your background or your experiences lead you to think you can't do it. I mean, God's sakes, I got my college degree in the military. You know, you, you got out at, a, at a, almost at a turning point in your career. You're like, all right, if I don't get out now, I'm going to do 20. Yeah. And then you went to Columbia. And, and, you know, you, you also went, obviously, some people may or may not know, but you went to Warden as well, and you were going there on the weekends. You know, and again, don't, don't, don't set, limit yourself. Just, just, just do it. Just go for it. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds corny, but just go for it. I mean, for God's sakes, you, you protected America, you fought for, America, for the United States, the greatest country in the, in the world, that allows you the freedom to choose where you want to be in life. Take it. Don't, don't think that you're limited to anything. Just go for it. Take a risk. That's all I got to say. It's out of promotion. All right. Well, uh, what was the line? Un uh, ejercito de uno? <laughs> it's a- <laughs> Give it to us one more Yo time. Soy, we'll sign off with Yo it. Soy el Army. Sergeant Guillermo Velo, Airborne Ranger. Your Soil Army. That's, That's it. it. That's it. <laughs> uh, oh, God. Thanks, man. Oh, God. You got me there. You got me there. I'll admit it. That's a good one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Bill bringing a personal touch to LATAM Finance, being a mentor coaching new bankers, maybe hosting you on your next vacation or any of several other ventures. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What. 